And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of The Mailbag on the Athletic Baseball Show. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal. You know how this works. We let you decide where this episode of the show goes with your baseball questions each week. Ken, you're back in the tri-state area after the Braves and Padres game on Saturday night. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Tim. And you? I am doing well. Also, um, don't look now, Ken, but the talk of an offensive power outage in April May have been greatly exaggerated. Well, I shouldn't say that. There was a power outage in April, but the calendar turns to May. Offenses may be coming back to life, and there is some facts, some stats to prove it. Um, and you have thoughts. I do have thoughts. And Dave Roberts, Dodgers manager, was quoted Sunday as saying, it's magically starting to carry a little more. He was referring, <laughs> of course, to the ball. I don't know that it's magic. And there were always with this conversation, a lot of factors involved. And we are seeing a little bit of an uptick in offense since May 2nd when teams went to a maximum of 14 pitchers. If you remember, we talked about this at some length. Teams were allowed to use as many as they wanted for that first period of the season, and some were using 15 and 16, and it would make it difficult on lineups because you would never be seeing the same relievers twice in many cases in a series. So that's one factor. It's also getting warmer. That's another factor. And we know that once it gets warmer and more humid, then the humidor is going to have something of a reverse effect in certain cities, and the ball should start to carry more. So there's never one issue here, and there's never one solution. There's never one particular problem. It's always this combination of factors. But you mentioned that there are some numbers to back this up, and there are. So through May 1st, the average runs per game was 4.08. Since May 2nd, when the limit was put on pitching staffs the size of 14, 4.31. So from 4.08 runs per game per team to 4.31. That's better. OPS, 678 to 694. Home runs per game up slightly as well from 0.91 home runs per game to 1.03. Again, I'm talking strictly about the time when there was an unlimited number of pitchers allowed per staff versus the time starting May 2nd when it went to 14. Now, 14 is still a lot. Don't get me wrong. But it's going to go to 13 on May 30th, and I expect that's going to help boost offense as well. You'll see possibly relievers more fatigued. Obviously, the teams are going to use options and play with their staffs and rosters that way. But the idea here is ultimately to boost offense. Now, You might ask, well, okay, it's up a little bit, and it is. How does that compare to last year? It doesn't compare to last year yet. And last year's numbers are still higher 
across the board, the, all the numbers that I just used, runs per game was higher, OPS higher, run, home runs per game higher as well. Okay, but we've seen an uptick, and with these things, I always want to see it play out. You have to see it play out. And granted, all of the concerns that were raised in the first month and all of the things that we wrote about in The Athletic, those were valid concerns. And to this day, this weekend, in fact, I heard the Braves talking about a ball Acuna hit that did not go out, launch angle of like 28 and exit velocity of 110, something along those lines. Every team has these stories from the first month. You might say, well, is there a conspiracy? I don't know that there's a conspiracy. I don't know that baseball is sharp enough or devious. Well, no, they're devious enough, perhaps, but not (laughs) sharp enough to actually control this thing the way we think they control it. Now, all that said, they've lost the benefit of the doubt on this particular issue because as I've written, it's something every single year. But as for the narrative for 2022, offense is up a little bit since that arbitrary date I picked, and it's not so arbitrary when the pitching staffs were limited to 14. Remember, May 30th, they go to 13. In the future, I expect baseball to try to push it to 12. And as they do that, that is something that, again, should account for more offense. And my hope, and we discussed this on the broadcast yesterday, my hope is that if they do go to 12, guess what happens? Not just an uptick in offense, but an increasing reliance on starting pitching again, bringing back the starting pitcher. Because if you've got a 12-man staff, you can't be going to the bullpen every third inning. You've got to kind of let those guys go a little bit, the starters. So, again, not saying baseball deserves the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't. But at the same time, at the same time, let's let the season breathe before we draw firmer conclusions about the baseball. This was always going to be the case where there was going to be a certain uptick once it got more humid, once the humidor started taking effect, once the weather is warmer, once hitters, perhaps, get back into form. Remember, we had a shortened spring training. All of these things could account for what we saw in April. The ball certainly was a factor, no doubt about it. And again, once more, let's see how it all plays out. And you mentioned the Acuna ball and, and that there's been numbers like that. I can't remember who I was talking to this week. It might have been Doug Glanville. Um, but, you know, MLB.com has StatCast, and one of the, the, the terms they use is barrels, right? Barreling yes. a ball. And depending on how this all shakes out, if this continues with these balls with perfect stats going as outs, they might have to change what a barrel is, I feel like, because it's just it used to be like if you barrel the baseball, chances are you're going to get a hit, and now it seems like that's – much less the case. Tim, you're absolutely right on that. And if you think about it, we also see expected numbers on what balls should do in terms of the percentage of hits that they would produce, right? We'll see this ball should have produced or would produce a 780 batting average in most cases. Well, all of that might need adjusting as we go on. I assume that they do adjust those numbers year to year anyway, or maybe even month to month. But hey, if the ball is deader, Well, the expected batting average on a ball that's hit at a certain launch angle and exit velocity is going to be lower than it once was. So you're absolutely right about all this, and (laughs) it's kind of confusing when you look at the whole picture, but it is necessary to adjust in those circumstances. Keep Mike Petriello busy over there at MLB.com. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. 
Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, you can call us the number 646-543-7072. You can also email us. You know the email by now, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And we're going to start with a question from Raymond. And it goes back to last week's episode, Ken, when we talked about Nestor Cortez. He says, I was listening to your show last week, and it got me thinking, the Jabba Chamberlain-Nestor Cortez comparison, is there any metric that you know of that has shown a statistically significant reduction of serious injuries to pitchers as a result of the popularization of pitch counts. I feel like within the last 10 years, I have noticed any, haven't noticed any decline in injuries over, over all the pitchers, but I have noticed a focus on limiting innings and pitch counts and now even total starts, but perhaps I am just not able to look at the numbers in the grand scheme of things. Any acknowledgement or answer would be greatly appreciated. Raymond, this is another case where it's never just one thing. Part of the reason injuries are up every year is medical staffs get better at diagnosing these injuries. At least that's true compared to, say, the 60s and 70s. And I believe it's actually true year to year as well. Teams become more sensitive to certain types of injuries. They're just more aware. That said, I go back many years to when John Farrell was the Red Sox pitching coach. And I would have this discussion frequently with John, and I would ask him, John, you guys put in the pitch counts, you're taking all these precautions to keep these guys healthy, and yet they keep getting hurt. Why is that? And what he would say is, would you prefer us to do nothing and just have an absolute, complete, risky environment for these guys? No, we wouldn't prefer that. But at the same time, it has never been fully shown, at least in my opinion, now I'm sure there have been some studies done along these lines, but never been fully shown that pitch count X equals injury Y. We don't know that. And let's look at the 100-pitch barrier as one example. Teams frequently use that, right? Oh, 100 pitches, you don't want to go over that. 110, oh my gosh, 120, oh, his arm's going to fall off. <laughs> Who established 100 as the number? It's an arbitrary number. And also, fans know this. Not all 100-pitch outings are created equally. If you throw 100 pitches in four and two-thirds innings, you're stressed beyond belief. If you throw 100 in eight innings and you're getting quick outs and you're kind of cruising along, that's not the same toll that it takes. So really, I don't know what the answer is. We have yet to figure out the key to keeping pitchers healthy and certainly what has been advocated of late or at least promoted, I guess would be the better word, this hard-throwing style that goes back to youth baseball. Throw hard. Throw hard. That's how you're going to get drafted. That's how you're going to get paid. Well, that certainly doesn't help with regard to keeping pitchers healthy. So, again, maybe some of the things that have been discussed for the future, including the reduced size of the pitching staff, will lead to a reduced reliance on velocity, and that will help. But the pitch count thing, I just hate being a slave to numbers and hate being in a position where we say, well we got to get him out here because this is the number. On that day, it very well might be. On that day, 70 pitches might be too much. Who knows? But at the same time, it's gone too far. Yeah, 100 pitches, third time through the lineup, all that stuff. All right, next question is from Stevie. He has a Mariners question. I'm writing to you today about the uh, Mariners who are struggling early in the season. The Mariners' fear has seemed to be in meltdown mode about Robbie Ray's slower start. 
Also, his reduced fastball velocity, Jesse Winker's disappointing start, and the struggles and demotion of Jared Kelnick. While a lot of other Mariners fans in my network seem to think that 2022 would be the year that we would take a step forward and be true competitors in the AL West, am I crazy for not being alarmed about the future of the team quite yet? To me, this year was more about the continued development of guys like Julio, Jared, George Kirby, Noel V. Marte, Emerson Hancock, and company. The Mariners are still in the bottom third of the league in payroll, even after the additions they made this offseason. The playoff drought may go on for another year, but I don't feel like it's quite the end of the world. Do you think the team could be looking at a bigger spending spree coming up this season? Guys like Trey Turner or Carlos Correa or Xander Bogarts. Stevie, first of all, nothing that happens with any baseball team is the end of the world. I know it might (laughs) seem like that sometimes on Twitter, but no. Seriously, your perspective is, in my opinion, somewhat valid. And I say somewhat. Because certainly they do have these young players. They do seemingly have payroll flexibility. They still should be in a very good position, no matter how this season turns out. And I should also note, this season is about one-fifth over. And it's such a long way to go. I'm not ruling out the Mariners playing better, though we've certainly seen some disturbing things so far. Some slow starts, some disappointments. Kalanick, of course. Winker has not hit the way you'd think. Ray has not been quite as good, though he's been good. You can point to all these things. That bullpen, to me, was always going to regress. It has regressed. But let's look at the bigger picture, because this is really what you're asking. Now, you're right that this team is well set up, it would seem, for the future. But this is Jerry DePoto's seventh full season. This is a team that has not made the playoffs since 2001. And this is year four of their rebuild. If you remember when DePoto, after the 89-win season in 2018, said they were going to reimagine and take a step back, the idea was not to take a step back for four or five years. The idea was, and he said this in a radio interview, to compete in 2020, 2021 in that range. Now, they did win 90 games last year, so it's not as if this has not exactly happened for them. They competed right to the end. It was a great year for the Mariners. But at the same time, hey, It's time, and this should be a year in which they are taking another step forward toward serious contention. They did some things in the offseason. Ray was a big addition. The Suarez-Winker trade, the addition of Adam Frazier. Maybe it wasn't as much as some Mariner fans were hoping for, but it wasn't nothing. And I expect DePoto will continue to be aggressive because he's always aggressive. But when you rely on young players, when you're banking on that, You're going to have some successes, and you're going to have some failures. Now, we've seen some successes. Logan Gilbert, absolutely. Julio Rodriguez looks like he's going to be a success. George Kirby and Hancock, these guys might be stalwarts in the rotation before long as well. But Evan White, long-term contract, injured for the second straight year. Kyle Lewis, got these knee problems that don't seem to be going away. Cal Raleigh, he really hasn't hit at the major league level yet. And, of course, Kellenick demoted for the second time in his career. He's only 22. Doesn't mean he's going to be a failure or anything like that. And it's too soon to make any judgments about the Kellenick-Cano trade. Just too soon. We have to see how Kellenick's future plays out. But in the big picture, at some point, the Mariners have to make the playoffs again. And enough reimagining. Enough, hey, we're going to be better next year. No, it has to be now. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, speaking of teams that have been disappointing so far this season, Jordan is a Red Sox fan. He says, I'm reacting to an abysmal strike three call in Wednesday night's game versus the Braves. If you didn't see that one and you're listening to this podcast, check it out. It was it was a very low pitch. I love the human element of the umpire, but would obviously prefer for calls to be made correctly, especially in game-changing or big moments. They may have still lost that game, but I would argue that their pitcher usage and mindset would have utili- been utilized differently. With this seemingly happening frequently across the league, instead of jumping straight to robot umps, is there any traction or path forward to a specific challenge system for balls and strikes? For example, let's say each Each team is given two or three challenges per game to use on either side of the ball, giving them the option to dispute game-altering calls. Jordan, I hear you, but I'm not with you. And the reason I'm not with you, one, we have too many disruptions already in the play, and we don't need more challenges. The last thing we need are more challenges. Also, it gets lost sometimes because we focus on the bad calls, but the umpires, by and large, do an amazing job. And that's true almost across the league there are certain exceptions angel being one of them but at the plate the ball strike percentage the percentage of correct calls is really high so yes there will be calls that at times are missed and at times as we saw in that red sox game they can be game changing but i always say when anybody objects to any call in a game not just a ball strike call but who knows anything that might happen a blown out call at third base A team has so many opportunities to alter the course of a game during the nine innings or extra innings, whatever the course might be. You cannot harp on one call. I am sorry. You have many opportunities to win the game in other ways. But getting back to your point, I don't think the answer is giving teams challenges for specific ball strike calls. I do think the answer ultimately is the robo-umps, the automatic ball strike system that they're going to eventually put into place once they get it perfected. Now, I expect even when they say that it's perfected, or at least close to perfection, we're going to have some issues at times, just as we have some issues at times now. But once that happens, once we have the automatic strike zone, hopefully then this kind of discussion will end because it's not good for the game. It's not good for fans. People harp on this stuff. You see the Twitter accounts that are dedicated to showing you which calls were gotten correctly and which ones were not. So that conversation, it's really important now because I think you have to keep people accountable and all that stuff. But at the same time, let's hope in the future it's diminished. The only way I'd be on board with the challenge is if they did it like tennis where it took like three seconds, right? I challenge, you see it on the board, strike, ball, move on. That would be cool. Um, But I tell you what, replay in general... 
I think everyone goes through this point where they're just sick of it. And the NBA playoffs this year put me over the edge. It takes so long with these replays of whether it was a charge or a block. Just call it. I don't care. Get it right. Get it wrong. That's all part of the controversy. Anyway, all right. I I digress and I move on. Uh, To Dan Zerby, who says, Ty Van Berkelios, tenure as Cleveland's hitting coach, was often criticized. Chris Vallecas has so far been short, but it has come with high praise. My question is twofold. I've heard opinions over the years that hitting coaches don't matter all that much and that a pro hitter is a pro hitter. Do you find that to be the case? And secondly, if hitting coaches do make a strong impact, how much of Cleveland's early success can be credited to Vileka? Is this just a small sample size or the byproduct of Cleveland targeting young players that feed into the style they're currently playing? Dan, like so many of these questions we get from you guys, this one has a multi-layered answer. That's why it's a really good question. So first of all, the importance of hitting coaches. They're important. Of course they're important. But should 16 teams have changed hitting coaches in the offseason? Was that the problem? 16 teams changed hitting coaches. No, the problem was the baseball, Ken. (laughs) To me, it's outrageous that that many teams identified the hitting coach as the scapegoat or the assistant hitting coach or the combination, whatever the case might have been. That, to me, was ridiculous. Now, that said, can a voice grow stale? Might a new direction be necessary at times? Of course. There's no doubt about that. And when you look at the Cleveland situation, Ty Van Berkeley had been there a long time. He had been there since 2013. He missed the COVID year, so really, it was nine seasons. And they weren't getting perhaps the results they wanted. They do have this wave of young hitters coming forward. They wanted, seemingly, a different voice. Now, Chris Valeka, former Major League infielder, Guy had been a minor league coordinator with the Cubs, was on their major league staff as an assistant hitting coach last season. He's 36 years old. He's someone who was viewed as an up-and-comer, and they identified him as a guy they wanted. This particular change I had no problems with because it wasn't as knee-jerk as some of the others that we've seen. Then the question becomes, as you so correctly ask, well, what's going on here? Is it the hitting coach? Is it the players? Is it a combination of both? I would expect that it's a combination of both. Certainly, the Indians have brought in some young talent. And while some of those hitters struggled last year, I'm thinking specifically of Jimenez as one example. He's growing now. He's getting to be a better player. Josh Naylor, healthy now. Stephen Kwan was not there last year. He seems to be someone who at least has great bat-to-ball skills. Is that the work of Chris Valeka? No, I would not expect it is. But... Clearly, their offense and their success, you have to give him some credit for that. If you're going to rip these guys and blame them every time guys go into slumps, well, you have to credit them as well, no matter what their actual input might be, when there is success. One other thing to note, and this is something a lot of fans are not necessarily aware of. In addition to the hitting coaches employed by their club, the head hitting coach, the assistant hitting coach, maybe there's someone else with a hitting background on the staff or even the manager, players today frequently use outside private instructors, which can lead to multiple voices in their head. So there are all these factors going on. There are all these different things that might have an effect on whether a young hitter produces. Sometimes you'll hear a hitter say, this guy's really made a difference for me. But other times, guys will search for things on their own and just find themselves that way. So there's really not one clear-cut answer. 
All right, moving on to Phil, who says, the minimum three batters rule is very good, but there are still too many pitching changes. How about adding a rule that no pitching change is allowed with the bases empty unless a home run cleared the bases? Not for it, Phil. Sorry. I do not like the three batter minimum. First of all, it has not achieved its desired effect. The whole point of the three batter minimum was to speed the game along, and guess what? Last year's average time of game Three hours, 10 minutes, that was the first full season. The three-batter minimum was in effect. It started in 2020. So for whatever this was supposed to achieve, it hasn't achieved that. I also don't like the removal of strategy that this three-batter minimum has brought about. Remember, a guy has to face three batters unless he's ending an inning. That is the only way out of it. Also, an injury couldn't be the only way out of it. And we had a situation last year. Now, granted... This was an extreme example, but it's kind of an example that points out why the rule is, in my view, so flawed. And it was pointed out at the time by a number of different outlets. Remember when Genesis Cabrera hit Bryce Harper? Scary incident, April 2021. He didn't have it that day. Why did we know that? Because he then hit Didi Gregorius. So here's a guy who was hit back-to-back batters. The Cardinals manager at the time, Mike Schilt, said he would have liked to have removed him there, but he could not. I I just don't see the impact of this rule. I don't see how it's achieving the desired effect, maybe in combination with some of the other rules that are coming into effect, such as the maximum number of pitchers on a staff. It will then become more in line with what baseball wanted in the first place. But to me, this one was unnecessary. All right, let's move on to a voicemail. Hey, Ken, Tim, uh, my name is Lee. I'm a Braves fan, long-time listener, long-time question asker. I have a quick question about baseball culture. All of the managers and players these days seem to say, we're just going to put our heads, our heads down, we're going to play our game, we're not going to pay attention to what other people are doing. Is that even true? Do baseball players watch other people play baseball other than for the purpose of, of film or catching pitchers, timing it up? Um, do do they even pay attention to what's going on around the league? Or uh, do baseball players uh, still maintain their status as fans of, of the game, whether that's individual players or teams? Uh, just thought you could speak some wisdom into the culture of being a player these days. Lee, this is an interesting question as well. And it's kind of like any workplace. Some people are more into it than others. Now, I'll give you one example. Alex Rodriguez, when he was playing, he would go home at night and watch all the West Coast games. He's obsessed with baseball, loved it. Derek Jeter was just the opposite. When he left the park, he shut it off. It's just two different approaches. And you have that throughout the league. Some guys are just baseball rats. They're obsessed with it. They love it. And other guys, it's their job. They love it in the sense of the playing aspect of it, but they don't love it to the point where they're following every Mike Trout at bat like some fans are. So that's one thing. Now, when teams or players or managers will say, we've got our head down, we're not paying attention to anyone else, what they mean is that they have to take care of their own business, their own team, before worrying about anyone else. You can bet that opposing managers, opposing coaches are well aware of what the other teams are doing. They are. But what they're saying is, their message is, we can't worry about that. If we don't play well, it doesn't matter anyway. And I'll give you one example from the weekend of how teams are hyper aware of each other. I was talking to a Braves coach. I'll leave him, I'll leave him nameless, put it that way. 
and we were talking about the Mets. And I said to him, hey, I know you guys feel you can turn it on, and you felt that way last year. And you guys all felt, ah, the Mets are not running away. And that's why Alex Anthopoulos, with that mindset, made the moves he did at the deadline. He thought the division was still winnable. So I said to this coach, different story this year. The Mets are better. How much better? I don't know, but there's clearly a better team. And he said, yes, they're better, but check out the number of infield hits. Infield hits! And the reason he mentioned that is because he's pointing to a certain degree of luck that the Mets have had. And it's true. Their hard hit percentage is not very high. They have a very high batting average on balls in play, which generally indicates good fortune. And I looked up the number of infield hits they had. And going into today, that number was 46. And I believe the next highest total was 34. So are teams aware of each other? Yes, they are well aware of each other. Yeah, that's amazing that that's the stat he went with. That's incredible. All right, next question's from Alex over in the UK. He says, I have a question about the Red Sox future. Let me preface this by saying I'd rather we contend this year, but if we continue to be poor, could it not be argued that it's actually the perfect time to have a bit of a teardown? We could trade Evaldi, J.D. Martinez, Waka, Hill, and Bogarts, who I think ownership gave up on along as soon as they signed Story. They're all free agents to be anyway, and the Hall, assuming health and continued good form, could be big with less sellers and more buyers than ever due to the extended playoffs. We could also agree to assume large chunks of those contracts to get back the best prospects that we could in each deal. With $76 million coming off the books and now a stacked farm system, we could easily extend Devers and sign or trade for players to build a young, hungry, perennial challenger for the foreseeable future. I always want us to challenge, but am I crazy to think that one down year right now could make us better in the long run not crazy but at the same time i will stress that we're recording this on may 15th you will be hearing this on may 16th we are two and a half months away from the trade deadline two and a half months it's a long time especially in baseball it's a really long time and the red sox entered sunday just four and a half games out of the third wild card they were trailing the blue jays the blue jays were the third team keep in mind also that when you trade potential free agents, you're not getting the return that you would think the quality of that player might merit. You're essentially trading a guy for two months. So Bogarts would give you that kind of return. If you remember Manny Machado, that was not a monster return the year the Orioles traded him to the Dodgers. Really, they haven't gotten much out of that deal at all. Darvish was the same with Texas. And even going to last season with Bryant and Baez and Rizzo, The Cubs did okay. They didn't get huge prospects in return. They got a couple of interesting guys that might develop, maybe not. So you can trade all the players you said, including Bogarts, who, by the way, has a no-trade clause and can veto any deal. But at the same time, this team was built to compete. It's a $200 million team. And they should be and will be given every chance to compete, as I wrote earlier this week. There's no excuse for them to play as poorly as they have. I expect them to play better. They have played a little bit better this week, and I expect ultimately they will contend. 
Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, we got another Xander Bogarts-related question. Uh, this one for you. Uh, I saw John Morosi talking about the Cardinals possibly trading for Xander Bogarts if the Red Sox continue to struggle. They could look to trade him to the Cardinals for possibly a high-end prospect like Nolan Gorman. Could you see the Cardinals making that move? I get the logic they were bringing up with the fact that the Cardinals could have an extension already agreed upon with him, and therefore they would be down to taking him on. But I don't see the Cardinals having three big contracts on the team like Nolan's, Goldie's, and Bogart's contract extension. Ken, and I will say that Nolan Gorman seems like a big ask for the Red Sox to get in return for Xander Bogart's. If you're signing Bogart's to an extension, yes, you can ask for Nolan Gorman. But... Yeah, This idea, Jim Bowden wrote about it, and I don't mean to be critical of a colleague, but I'm going to disagree with a colleague. This idea, to me, doesn't make much sense. And first of all, let's start with the idea of Bogart signing an extension. Forget Nolan Gorman for Bogart's long term just for a second. I'll get to that. Bogart's is going to be at the deadline two months away from free agency. Why would he want to sign an extension with one team when he will soon be free to negotiate with all 30? Why would he limit his market that way? His agent, Scott Boris, generally prefers his guys to go to the open market. Now, Bogarts was an exception when he signed this extension. He told Bo Boris, I want that deal. Let's go. The Cardinals 
did sign Paul Goldschmidt before he ever played a game for them, but those were different circumstances. They traded for him in December. He was in spring training with them for about four or five weeks before he agreed to that deal, and he was also a year away from free agency or a season away from free agency. So it's not quite the same. I just don't see that happening. I don't know why Bogarts would want to box himself in like that unless he somehow has this childhood dream of playing for the St. Louis Cardinals, which I sort of doubt he has growing up in Aruba. So that's one thing. The other thing is Nolan Gorman, intriguing prospect, no doubt. We don't know what his long-term position is going to be. He is a prospect, and I don't know that the Cardinals – the way they see things now, are going to want to look at trading him when he could be an affordable player for them going forward long term. He could be their second baseman at some point pretty soon. Now, maybe he doesn't fit because maybe he's not really a second baseman. Remember, that's not his natural position. But to the real point that you made, and this is probably the best point, they're going to pay three different infielders $100 million plus each? Mm, I don't see that. So... Could they sign Bogarts in free agency? I think that's actually more realistic than a trade for him. And yes, it would still be the same problem. Three infielders with monster contracts when you have other needs. The Cardinals have a ton of money. There's no doubt about that. They can do whatever they want. But I don't believe that's the way they'd want to allocate it. So I am calling a kibosh on this idea. (laughs) It's an idea that it's fun to talk about. It's interesting to write about. But as we get closer to the deadline... What I'd like to do is deal in the world of realistic possibilities. I don't see this as one. All right, final questions, a voicemail. Hi there, this is Alexander calling in from the D.C. metro area. Um, I've got a question about Kumar Rocker. Um, I was actually thinking of him a couple of weeks ago, and then I recently saw Keith Law's big board that had a little blurb on Rocker. Um, What's going on with him? What is he doing this year? I know um, Keith was talking about him probably playing indie ball or something for a a little bit of a showcase before this year's draft. Um, But do you have any insight on what he's been up to uh, in the meantime? And we do know, Ken, that he has signed with the Tri-City Valley Cats in the Frontier League. But other than that, I think there's more to answer there. There is. And Keith was very prescient because Kumar did sign a deal with an independent league team. Actually, the Tri-City Valley Cats are in the Frontier League. And if you're wondering where they are, They play in Troy, New York, which is outside of Albany, the state capital of New York. Now, to go back, Kumar Kumar Rocker was drafted 10th overall by the Mets last year. No agreement was reached. The Mets were concerned, clearly, about the health of Rocker's arm. So now he gets the chance to re-enter the draft. And you might say, well, how can he do that if he's turning professional? But the independent leagues are one way for players to indeed take kind of a side route back into the draft. And others have done it before, Rocker. This is not something that is that new. The idea, yes, to showcase for major league teams, to face live hitters so they can see you from a scouting perspective in that sense again. Those scouts have been unable to see Rocker for a long time now. So with a great showing, could he rocket back up the draft boards? It's possible. But As Baseball America pointed out, it's still probably going to depend on what his medicals look like, what team doctors think. But this is interesting, certainly, to see him back in action. A couple of months left before the draft, he can really change some people's perceptions of him, no matter what their perceptions might be, one way or the other. 
All right. Thank you, everybody, for the great questions. If you want to get your question on next time around, 646-543-7072 is the phone number or tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Next up on the feed at Starkville on Tuesday, Boog Shambi is going to join from the ESPN. And, of course, the Cubs, he's been on a couple times. Always a great guest. Then the Roundtable Wednesday with uh, Grant Brisby and Andy McCullough. And then on through the rest of the week, great baseball content throughout the week. And if you want to join The Athletic, get all the great writing from baseball to football to basketball to hockey, all of it. It's $1 per month for six months right now. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show for that. Ken, have a great week. See you seeing the Padres again next week, right? I am. Padres at Giants. I'll be back in the Bay Area.